God bless you, everyone that's um, here in the main sanctuary in Brown Chapel, those of you that are listening at home and other places. Let's uh, begin as our custom is with the Lord's Prayer. And let's understand, I know we know this, but just sometimes we need to be reminded, this is not just a ritual that we go through. This is not just something we do, even because Jesus said, this is how you pray. We, when we pray this prayer, we're not only asking God to be our protector and our pardon and our provider, we're asking him to be the Lord of the universe. That's what he is, but we want to cooperate with it. We want to, we want to join arms with him. So let's pray together. Uh, it'll be on the screen. Uh, people uh, have said, I thought I knew it until we started praying it. Well, you probably did. There's so many different versions of it, but this is the one that we chose. So let's pray together as a church body all over the place today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And thank you, Maddox and Jackson and Seth and Lena, for helping me with that today. I want to open my heart to you today. I, I don't know of any time that I have been more terrified to preach a message than this day. I've never in my mind can remember a message that I thought brought more fear and trembling to me than this message. And I know you're here to cheer me on. You say, oh, pastor, don't be afraid to to preach the word of the Lord. Don't let people intimidate you. Let me be sure you understand. I'm not afraid of people. I'm not afraid of politics. I'm not afraid of uh, social media or whatever. I am terrified because I realize that uh, God's hand of judgment is against so many who have not spoken his word. I, I listen to someone who attends uh, a Catholic church, and this morning the statement was made after some disturbing things were made by the archbishop or by the bishop. I'm not worried about the election. I'm worried about the damnation of your souls. And I thought, boy, that's that's the kind of worry that I think pastors need to be under today. We're in the we're beginning the eighth month of this pandemic. And while we have some light, I also realize that many things are still unresolved. And it's time for us, I believe with all of my heart, I believe God has put this in my heart. It's time for us to start making sense of 2020. If we don't begin to come together and get a grip on what has happened, we will continue to let fear and anger and questions dictate us as we go forward and that is the plan of the enemy to get the church off of its mission. Now, there are some things we uh, have borne up under and we've just kind of laughed and made fun and, and we have to because sometimes it's just better to laugh than to cry. 
for instance, somebody explained to me the reason for the coin shortage that was prophesied. Um, uh, it's because all of our coins have been put in wishing wells trying to make 2020 come to an end. Someone sent me a church sign from an Assembly of God church this morning. I thought it was great. It says, we want to be like Paul. We're trying to find the road to demask us. In his book, um, R.T. Kendall, that I recommended to you, talks about uh, uh, Joe Garlington. I believe it was Joe Garlington that was driving through Pennsylvania, trying to find uh, a destination that was in the middle of nowhere. And the GPS did not serve him well, got him totally lost. He said, in the dark of night, we came to the end of a road and did not know where we were. And the GPS said this with cool and calm voice. You have come to the end of all known information. <laughs> That's the way it's felt in 2020 uh, in so many instances. I was thinking where many of us might feel we are at. Let's go back in time to the 70s when I was just finishing my first master's degree. And I was so proud. Uh, I'd been away from home and hopefully my mom was going to come up for graduation. She didn't get to make it, but I was so excited. And we went to pick up our gown and our, and our honor sashes and things like that. <clears throat> and I tried mine on and my heart sank. It absolutely sank because it fit great, except when I put my arms in, the sleeves were sewn up. I couldn't put my hands through. And I thought, well, I, I need to cut it. I, I need to, but then it, that'll look so ragged. And I, I didn't know, I, I didn't know uh, how to sew. My, my only experience sewing was my pajamas had ripped. And I was so tired. I just wanted to, I was afraid that I, you know, would forget it was there and embarrass myself. So I sat on the bed with needle and thread and, you know, kind of pulled them down just a little bit and very carefully started sewing up my pajamas. And it looked like something off the face of Frankenstein, but it, it seemed to work. And I said, I've done it. And I got up and realized I had sewed my pajamas to the sheet and I was now dragging that. So I decided, no, I'm not, I'm not going to sew up the sleeves. So I went to one of the ladies that worked in the registrar's office and I said, ma'am, I said, I know we probably don't have time to reorder, but I don't know what to do. I said, graduation's next week and, and I have a defective robe. And she looked at me and smiled and I realized I wasn't the only one that had been in there. She said, let's put it on and see what you're talking about. So I put it on and I put my arms through. I said, look, there's no place for my hands to come out. And she said, go back to your elbow. She held the sleeve, said, go back to your elbow. And there was a slit there where my hand comes through. Well, it was actually going up where my hand came through and the sleeve hung down. She said, well, she said, you came to school to get informed, but today you're going to get enlightened. She said, this is based on, and she told me the, the university, I don't even remember, it was a European university. And back in the Middle Ages, when a person had earned their master's degree, what that meant is that they would never have to do manual labor again. 
So they were given a robe with saying, my hands are covered. My hands will never need to be soiled again. But the hands came out at the elbow. And she said, look at this picture. She took me to her boss's office and showed me his picture in his master's robe. And his hands were, were out and his sleeve was hanging down. She says, this is an academic tradition. It's supposed to be like this. And I said, oh, okay. She said, that's the difference between being educated and being enlightened. <laughs> While we were waiting in line, some had, there were, there were two or three that were, that were wearing it that way. They said, look at this, look at this. And I said, let, let the enlightened explain to you. Loved ones, we are in a time right now, we have been educated far beyond our level of obedience. And we don't need a lot more education, but we need a lot of enlightenment. We need God to help us because in many real ways, we have come to the end of all known information. The plan of the enemy is to defeat, distract, bring us to despair. The psalmist warned us, David Wilkerson called it, the enemy's twins, fear and fretting. That's what he wants to do. Um, and I, I've been saying, let's, let's look for hope. It's not always going to be this way. And I've come to believe that what I probably should be saying instead of it's not always going to be this way is we're not always going to be this way. There's a book I want to recommend to you. Uh, it's there in your notes. We've Never Been This Way Before by R.T. Kendall. Um, it's, it's not a book that, and, and, and I agree with the book, but it's, it's, you never find a book that you agree with everything. But I think R.T. has a good um, overall view of what uh, we're dealing with and helping us understand 2020. I think it's the stuff we've been preaching for years, and we need to come home to what we've been taught. Um, his book title, I, I, I've Never Been With You, or You've uh, Never Been This Way Before, is based on the story of Joshua going into the land. And um, in Joshua 3, 4, it says, he said, stay close to the ark, for you have never been this way before. Now, I want to tell you, first of all, there was a delicate balance during that tumultuous time in Israel. They had to stay close enough to the ark to see it, but they had to stay far enough away from the ark that everyone could see it. If everybody got too close, those in the rear couldn't see. So Joshua, his first task is really, uh, as, as leader, is to help the people understand you've got to be so close to the Lord that you can see him, but there has to be a holy, healthy respect that you step back and that will enable everyone to see. And then he gave him the promise as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I want to say one more thing and then I'm going to have to stick pretty much manuscript with the rest of the message. I believe as I prayed with great sincerity for now in the eighth month of the pandemic, I, I believe that God has bound his people to incompleteness and lack of understanding right now. I think God could have easily sent a wave of healing. I think God could have easily dealt with the virus. I think God could have easily 
uh, not allowed uh, the, the racial uh, atrocities that have happened to happen. God could have easily just stopped everything and healed everything and fixed everything. But God is allowing us, I believe with all of my heart, and this is what I'm fearful to not preach. God has allowed these things to happen and he's allowed many of us to stay in darkness in order to come to the end of ourselves that we might empty ourselves of our understanding and fill ourselves with his understanding. I remember when I was asked to pastor a church in another state just before I came here, um, the church was wonderful people, phenomenal people. They had asked me to come um, just before I came here and I, I walked through that church and, and I knew the history of that church was this. They had fallen on hard times and they were down here. And I felt like I had a burden for that church, I had a burden for that city, I had worked there before, and I felt like I could, could go in and really revive this church and make a difference in it. But as I prayed and as they gave me a key and I just walked through the church day after day, I kept feeling torn, I kept feeling torn, I kept feeling uh, unsettled. And uh, I was so excited and, and uh, Terry Wasden came to pray with me and he was so excited. But as we ended our, our tour, we both were overwhelmed with a sense of be sure, be sure, be sure. And I remember after dropping Terry off, I was sitting in front of a store I was so troubled that I had gone in to get something to drink, uh, a Pepsi, not a, anything stronger, I assure you. <laughs> but I just, I just needed to kind of clear my head. And, and the Lord spoke to me so strongly sitting in that parking lot. And this is what I'd asked him to do for days. I said, Lord, I'll do whatever, just tell me. And I felt the Lord speak to me so clearly, and this is what he said. What he, it was what he spoke to Ezekiel. Can these bones live? Can these bones live? Now, I didn't want God to ask me a question. I wanted God to answer a question. And my answer to him was the one of, of Ezekiel. Lord, you know. And I, I, at that moment, two things became preeminent in my mind. I will not get a word from the Lord, go or don't go, but he knows the way and he knows whether these bones can live. And what he was doing is he's saying, will you commit to my will no matter what it is? Will you trust me with this decision? And I said, Lord, you know if the bones can live. I know I can't make them live. And if I can make them come to life, that's just works of the flesh. But you know the future of this church. You know my future. You know what my children need. You know what my wife and I need. Lord, you alone know if these bones can live, so I commit it to you. And he sent a peace at that point. I want to tell you, loved ones, there is a blessedness at coming to a place where you don't have the answers. And I'm going to just be honest with you. I know we're all hurting in some regard. I know we're all confused in some regard. But I want to tell you, some of us are leaning on the flesh heavy. Some of us are leaning into bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness 
heavy. And I would not dishonor the Lord by telling you, well, it doesn't matter if you believe this or you believe that. I, I'm not even going to tell you it doesn't matter how you vote. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. But I'm telling you, we are not going to see a resolution until we can get to the place where when we look at the questions of our existence, the questions of our society, that we are fully willing to say, not as I will, but as you will, Lord. I've told you I used to believe that praying may the Lord's will be done was a weenie way out. It was a prayer prayed by someone that did not want to take the time to pray the price to find out the will of God. And I've been weak, weak, weak through the years of praying your will be done. But I tell you what I've been strong in at times. I've been strong in letting my mind say, well, it's obvious this is right. This is a no brainer. It's, it's obvious that this is the will of God. And I prayed because I felt like I was certainly the one who understood the will of God. But as I've gotten older and better looking, I want to tell you what I've come to realize. I've come to realize that the greatest prayer I can pray is, Lord, your will be done. Now, I know it's possible. I know it's possible for us to do what I said. Just let that prayer be a, I don't want to get involved. Lord, just do what you want to do. And, and, and just because God allows something to happen, that doesn't mean that that represents his desire. I understand that. But I'm telling you, we're in a place in America right now. We're in a place in the Christian church in America. We're in a place at Christian life in Columbia where it is absolutely essential that we back off of our bitterness and back off of our politics, and back off of our anger, and back off of our fear, and withdraw the pointing finger, as Isaiah said. Loved ones, I want to tell you, with all that's going on in Washington, and Chicago, and New York, and California, there's something going on in these pews right now. And it is whether or not whether or not, I'm not saying there aren't problems and there aren't things that need to be done. But the question is, are we going to move forward under the direction of the Holy Spirit or are we going to choose the wrath of man, the frustration of man, the fear of man to fix it? Now, I, I, have, I have weathered a storm these eight months. I've been called racist. I've been called a socialist, depending on what I said. I'm not here to pout and say, you've mistreated me. No, I'm here to say I have a fear of God that transcends any of that other stuff. Now, I want to tell you, not everybody is going to be able to make this journey to the next level with us because we are not trading our commission for the harvest for anything else. Now, we will do everything we can about justice and about the ills of America. We will march down that path arm by arm for those that are willing. But loved ones, we are about to make the greatest mistake the church in the West has ever made if we don't refocus on the Lord. And, and I know, I know that there are many that disagree with that. You've been very gracious to let me know. But loved ones, I can't fix your bitterness. I can't fix your hatred for the Democratic Party. I can't fix your hatred for the Republican Party. I can't fix the biases 
that you bring into your life. I can't fix your fear and your anger and your sense of hopelessness, but I can point you to a better path and I can point you to a better way. And I I realize that two can't walk together unless they're agreed. And I'm not asking you to walk with me if you're not agreed, but I'm telling you, we have worked our way through this and we're not changing as a church. We're going on the path that God has given us. You remember we talked about this with the ark, the ark, with the exodus the other night when Israel was hemmed in between two mountain ranges and the Red Sea. God told them to keep moving, keep moving. And loved ones, we have allowed things, we've allowed the last eight months to stop us and we've not kept moving. I don't think there's anything wrong with stopping sometimes. God sometimes stopped the children of Israel, but it was time to rest and reflect, not to change allegiances. I've, I've got to go on here. Y'all going to, Justin, am I saying everything you wanted me to say? Is this right? Okay. <laughs> Let's get started. First of all, let me say the chances of this message making everyone happy are twofold, slim and none. (laughs) We're not going to agree on everything. We have different persuasions. We have different politics in, in our church body. We have different convictions. We're from different backgrounds. So our quest, I'm not saying we need to be uniform, but I am saying that we need to be united. We are speaking to many today who have taken issues, uh, the issues of 2020 to the Lord and are at peace. We are speaking to many more who are still processing. I want to say I've never seen anything bring a feeling of helplessness and fear like this virus to Christian and sinner alike. I think the impact of COVID-19 is, is best understood when we add to it the senseless, un. un- redeemable, unforgivable murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. There's never a right way to do a wrong thing. And I've never seen outrage spread over an event like that in my lifetime. It's the, the, the murder of George Floyd had a supernatural element to it that allowed it to affect nations around the world. Things like that happen regularly in nations around the world, but something ignited that brought everything up to another level. Um, And anger, fear, and confusion is an explosive combination. One Christian said that the church has no answer for the COVID crisis, nor should we be expected to have one. I understood what he was trying to say, but that's wrong. (laughs) The challenge is for the church to discern the right questions and then answer them with godly wisdom. The church must point our nation and the world in the right direction. The problem is not that we don't have answers. The problem is that we right now as a church will accept no questions or answers that are not part of our own personal worldview. We ask people their opinion, and then after they share their opinion, they say, we say, you're not like me, so you can't understand anyway. We are in some ways stuck in a ditch everyone wants to get out of, but we aren't sure how. It seems many solutions that we embrace are as bad as the problems. 
we, we, we are trying to work our way through this. We're, we're trying to be, and I think we're beginning to understand that we need to embrace some movements, but separate some movements from some organizations. We're, we're seeing that one of the greatest needs right now is for us to ask God to help us see and understand people of differing opinions from us. Now, it's complicated because some people, I'm talking about in the church, are willing to deal with this, but not that. And others are willing to deal with that, but not this. COVID-19 is possibly the most far-reaching natural crisis in the history of mankind because the world has become something of a global village. Uh, we are interconnected and we are interdependent from our economy to our television to our uh, 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 supply and demand of, of vital goods. We are truly a global community now. So what happens in one part of the world can very quickly sweep and take over another part of the world. Racial tensions are higher nationally than at any time, uh, at least since the civil rights movement. And perhaps we're in a time of racial division that is overshadowed only by the civil war. Regardless of our opinion of COVID and the following questions I want to try to answer, I think we would all agree that economies, cultures uh, have effectively been shut down and the what ifs are not getting resolved. We are in over our head in many regards. Now I want to say this, I want to say this, I want to say this especially to those who are here that are hurting, that are fearful. I know our stories are different, but please don't make the mistake of thinking that because someone's story is different than yours, their pain is less than yours. Please understand right now, we all feel to some measure for differing reasons, disrespected, ignored, misunderstood. And if we're not careful, we will cave in to anger, to fear, to bitterness. And we've got to come to two points today. Number one, we need to try to begin to understand where are we? And number two, how can God help us? Now here's the first question. And this is, the, the church itself is not united on this. I don't mean our church, but I mean the church world. Are we under judgment? I want to tell you, I, we are in an information age where things are posted in a minute. And if you don't give, a min, if you don't give an answer in a minute... Uh, it's called silence or it's called, you know, sticking your head in the sand. There's a virtue that has been lost in this society. And that is let, letting the wisdom of seeing something before you make a judgment on it. So I've been slow to say this. I've said it could be, but I have, this is not a knee jerk reaction, but I've come to the conclusion that I believe we are under judgment. I think America is under judgment. And I'll tell you why. Some have asked, do you believe this is the long emergency that you talked about? I'll answer that question too in just a few moments. I believe America is under judgment for four things. Any four of these are grounds for judgment. Now I've got to say this, sometimes things happen and it's not judgment. It's called judgment, but it's not judgment. We're broken people living in a broken world. But I, I really feel that we are under judgment under the judgment of God. You say, why, Pastor? Well, there are four reasons. They're in your note. I think we're under judgment for the legalizing, and not just the legalizing of abortion, but the defense of abortion. 
We, we, are, we are under judgment for not only committing abortions, but for going so far out of our way, even as a church, to defend abortions. I want you to know that abortion is the defining sin of this generation, and the enemy will do anything he can to distract our attention from abortion. We, we spent two weeks talking about abortion in February. I still think that was a message from God for our church. And then all of this began to break out and, and we have laid abortion way over here to the side. The only ones talking about abortion now to speak of are the politicians that want you to know you've got to do everything you can to preserve your right to abortion. And that's why in this next week, we're going to have a link that we'll make available to you where you can go back and listen to those two messages that I preached in February, I think it was, or late January and February about abortion. And there's also a link to Jonathan Kahn's message that he spoke during the return. I think, not putting myself on the level of Jonathan Kahn, but I think the two messages I preached on abortion and Jonathan Kahn's message on the return are foundational and fundamental for who we are as a church. And I want you to be able to go back and listen to those things. Um, that's number one. There are strongholds of racism. And loved ones, we can get into an argument, is, is the racism systemic or is it not systemic? You know, we have some that believe that, uh, you know, the whole nation is systemic. We just, we started off bad, we need to burn it down. Then there are others that say, uh, no, there's no racism at all. And um, I, I don't know what they've been watching, but there's... <laughs> There's, there's another group that says, yes, there are pockets of systemic racism, but Americans in general are not systemically racist. In other words, some people are racist and some are not. And I don't know where you fall on this, but um, it, it's, it's undeniable that racism exists. You, and and I, I had somebody get mad with me last week. There's not a racist bone in my body. And I said, well, then I'm not talking to you, am I? <laughs> I mean, I... If there's no racism in you, don't get your bowels in an uproar <laughs> over us preaching against racism because there are places that it exists. There are places where it lives itself out. And we are in an age where there is racism in the black community, in the white community, in the Hispanic community. Uh, this thing's broken, loved ones. And the Bible has a lot to say about racism and, and putting one group of people above another. Uh, so there's abortion, there's racism. But I want to tell you things that may have tipped the scale uh, more than we realize. And number, and number three on the list is contempt for God. See, it's particularly grievous in America because we have sinned against the light. Uh, there's a lot of places that are worse than America. I still think America is the greatest nation to live. I've been in too many other nations to be of the persuasion that America is not the greatest place on earth to live. With our problems, we're the greatest place to live. Uh, I, I think there's no place with opportunity like America. There's no place with, with protection like America. But I also know that there are real problems that we need to deal with. And the reason... You say, why would God judge America? We're better than so-and-so. And I think the answer is found in this. We have had such incredible light. And we have sinned against the light. <coughs> and we have shown utter contempt in our society 
for God. Uh, he, he is not welcome. He wasn't welcome in our schools. He's not welcome in our courtrooms. He's not welcome in the marketplace. And we have said, we don't want you in our society anymore. And we've done that against light. And that's a very serious thing. Number four, and I, I don't mean to come across like we're the only good church. Not at all. Uh, all churches have weaknesses and flaws. Um, no pastor is right on everything. No denomination has perfect doctrinal stance on anything. But there is an apostasy in our churches that I lay at the feet of the pastors because from the pastors we produce our seminaries. And our seminaries are producing a message that has defiled the Word of God. And we've sent graduates into the pulpits to teach people that on one hand this, but on the other hand the other. And we have lost sight of the Word of God. It is now up for debate. Clear-cut commands in the Word of God are now being questioned by ministers who say, well, it's a matter of interpretation. Or we don't really know what Paul meant. And we go on and on and on. There is an apostasy in the churches. There's a contempt for God. There are strongholds of racism. And I think the defining sin, we're talking 62 million lives. 62 million lives have been taken and short-circuited by the abortion industry in America and loved ones, I'll say it again, I'll say it if I end up leading 100 people or 3,000 people. Abortion is not a political issue. It has never been a political issue. It has always been a moral issue. You say, well, that's just, you're, you're just a Republican. You're just a conservative trying to tell us that. Loved ones, go back to the issue of slavery that brought on the Civil War. There were, there were thousands upon thousands of Christians who would say things like this, slavery is wrong, but, and then they'd talk about other illnesses in the community. And loved ones, it brought a war that resulted in much death. It, it, I could talk about the history of that on and on, but the, the church has got to stop saying, you, 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 and you have got to stop saying abortion is a sin, but there's no but. When you study the history of Israel, they went through all kinds of sins, one after the other, but the one that clearly pushed them over the line was when they began to offer their children to Moloch. I will not walk past this election. I will not leave this church. I will not go to my grave with blood on my hands saying things like abortion's wrong, but so is a lot of other things. We've got to take on this defining sin and it must be destroyed. We've got to recover the dignity of man. We've got to believe that all men were created equal and that to every man, woman, boy, and girl should be equal opportunity. No one should face even a moment's hesitation because of the color of their skin. We've got to take a stand against that and we've got to do everything we can to make sure that is gone. We've got to be a bright light so that the church causes the people 
to, re, to re, remove contempt for God from their midst, you say, well, that's not going to happen as long as there's a move of the Holy Ghost. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. That was perhaps one of the purest moves of God in the history of the church. Uh, it even got to the point where God killed Ananias and Sapphira, bringing judgment to his own church. And what does it say? Does it say that the community had contempt for the people of God? No, it said it held them in high regard. And they were taken very seriously. The world itself understands that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And that's what the church has walked into. Our health, our finances, our freedoms, and our safety is at risk in many of these situations. Are we under judgment? I think so for perhaps as many as four reasons. Number two, we ask the question, did God do this? Boy, I tell you what, this is, this is like the house being on fire and, and people arguing how the fire got started, you know. Did God bring this judgment? Some say that such activity is contrary to his nature. Therefore, this must all be the work of Satan. And loved ones, I want to tell you, I know when Dana Coverstone gave his first prophetic dream, it was very disturbing. It was very upsetting. Never mind it was the kind of thing we've been saying around here since 2008. But a lot of people found comfort in a prophetic voice from Atlanta that said, this is not the way God works. God would never do this. God would never bring judgment. And then he began to vilify men and women of God that had made predictions and said it didn't work out like they said it would. And he quoted them out of context. And if you got that initial response to Dana Coverstone from the church in Atlanta, I would say the best thing you can do with that is use it to start a fire. I better be careful. A campfire roasting marshmallows. <laughs> when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Many times I struck your gardens, your vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees that you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Isaiah, I form the light, I create darkness, I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And Proverbs tells us, in fact, it tells us twice, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it is the way of death. Loved ones, we talked about holy ground just a little bit. Moses was drawn to the bush that was burning and he wanted to know why it was not burning. But when he got there, God's only response, he, he didn't answer the question. He said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. That happened another time when Joshua was getting ready to start his campaign. That would rid the promised land of the enemies that were under the judgment of God. Remember, it wasn't just God saying, I love you and I hate you and I'll drive them out and you can go in. God made them wait 400 years in slavery while he exhausted his mercy toward those nations. That, that's from the book of Genesis. He told Abraham, they're going to be in, in, in Egypt for 400 years because the cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. 
He said, I've got to be fair to these people before I can bless you. And when Joshua was ready to make that campaign, he saw a, a great warrior with a sword drawn. And Joshua drew his sword and he said, are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord, some translations say neither, but I think a better translation is no. No. No, you, you misunderstand the question. Are you for us or are you for them? No. The intent was neither, and that's a good, it's a good translation. He said, but I am the Lord of hosts. I have come to direct this battle. And this is what he said. Joshua, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. R.T. Kendall in his book makes a good point. He says, there are things like the question of did God do this that we cannot satisfactorily answer. He says, on one hand, it's the work of the enemy. On the other hand, it's the work of God. And I believe, loved ones, that pastors and churches are wasting their time trying to figure out, is this the devil or is this God or is it the president's fault or is it Congress' fault? <coughs> and what we need to understand is that when God brings judgment, it is so supernatural, it is so dynamic that it defies description of who is responsible. My advice is stop passing judgment. Stop passing judgment on each other. Loved ones, I want to tell you, I'm not in social media. I don't like it. I've found it to be absolutely unbeneficial for the most part. But some of you just need to be quiet. Amen. Christian life, some of you need to just be quiet. You need to humble yourself before God. You need to take your shoes off. On one hand, you tell everybody, let's act like Christians. Then on the other hand, you act like the devil. Take your shoes off, fall on your face, call upon God and be quiet. Stop passing judgment on each other and more importantly, stop passing judgment on God. R.T. puts it this way, the difference between what God causes and what he permits is holy ground. Let us take off our shoes and worship. You say, Pastor, I don't, I don't, that's being a weenie. No, it's not. Let me give you an example. I could preach a message like I did a couple of Easter's ago on who crucified Jesus. When I go to the scripture, I find six definitive statements, six proofs of who crucified Jesus. Number one, Pontius Pilate did it. Even some of the Christian, um, um, help me, uh, creeds, some of the Christian creeds identify Pilate as the one who crucified Jesus. Pilate said, I have the right to set him free set you free or crucify you. And Jesus said, you have no power unless it's given to you from God. So Pilate took responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus. You can also find scriptures that state clearly the Roman soldiers were responsible. The greatest murder, the greatest atrocity uh, in, in the history of the earth was perpetrated by the Roman soldiers. They were guilty. You read another verse and the Jewish authorities and the crowd that was swept up into the anger of the moment was responsible. <coughs> so we've got Pilate, the Roman soldiers, the Jews. We know that Satan was responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. On another plane, as we get into the theology of the New Testament, Paul and Peter, they help us understand you and I did it. We're responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But when you read Isaiah 53, 4 and verse 10, you find something that we don't know what to do with. God did it. 
God was responsible for it. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had, the Lord, he has put him to grief. Loved ones, when judgment comes, and there's no greater judgment than there was on our sin at, at uh, Calvary. When judgment comes, it, it is so um, big and so transcendent and it is so layered that we can, we can find right here six places we can lay the blame, including God. The lesson of it, when it says that God pleased, it pleased God to do it, is that nothing happens without his permission. The question isn't even always, did he do it or did he permit it? The fact of the matter is, it couldn't have happened without God embracing it. And I think we need to come to a very holy moment where we drop to our knees and stop blaming whoever we're blaming. Drop to our knees and say, the Lord has done this. How is it going to affect me? <coughs> I don't have COVID. I'm yelling and I'm hurting my throat. <laughs> Here's the question we need to ask. What's happening in me? I mean, eight months of fear and anger and frustration and disruption. And what has it done in you? Has it done anything other than produce more fear and anger? So let's go back to the earlier question. Are we under judgment? I believe we are, but hopefully not utterly so. I believe that for eight months, God has been bringing churches and governments and households and individuals to the end of ourselves to make room for him. I believe we're going to come through this more like Jesus than when we went into it. But loved ones, my fear is that some of you won't come along. Some of you won't come along. You'll die and you may carry it for 10, 15, 20, 25 years to your grave. But the legacy of 2020 to you will be anger hostility, bitterness, wrath, violence, judgment. Loved ones, the question for you that are listening today is what are we going to let this do to us? If this is a judgment, if, if God is bringing abortion to the table, what are you going to do about it? If God is bringing racism to the table, what are you going to do about it? If God is bringing to the table the accusation that as a culture we've begun to hate God, again, not necessarily in the church, but I'm talking about the culture, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to let our light shine? Isaiah 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who were wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. You say, well, that sounds horrible. Well, then let's wrap our arms around Habakkuk. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And in your wrath, 
remember mercy. The week of March 12 to 15, we got the first blow to the face with the COVID virus. And I think it's May 25th. I think I've got the right date. We saw the horrendous murder of this gentleman in in Minnesota, you say, well, we, you, there's more about him. That's, again, there's never a right way to do a wrong thing. And there are similarities between Israel and American, America in our covenants. Israel was in covenant with God because God chose them. Is, America's a little different. I believe we were formed in covenant with God, but it was because we we're coming from Christian background, Christian persecution, and we desired to be in covenant with God. And that's why I said we have sinned a great sin against light. Now, I want to say this. I want to say what nobody wants to say. Somebody says, well, what about the bad moments and bad behavior of America? Pastor, we need to just tear it all down. America's had problems from the beginning. America has had problems from the beginning. America had a chance to deal with slavery, and it was the legislation from South Carolina that prevented slavery from being dealt with in those early days. We had a chance to do what was right, but South Carolina threatened to withdraw if slavery wasn't protected. And we ought to be on our knees leading the way as natives of South Carolina because it's a horrible thing. We've made mistakes. There was never a treaty I know of with the Native Americans that white America kept. We took the Japanese Americans and interred them in concentration camps without any due process of law. But with all of this, God had a way of helping and working and moving us toward a day of resolution. You say, well, I just think we ought to just burn it all down. Well, loved ones, what about your life as a Christian? What about your early days serving Jesus when you acted like an idiot? What about those sins that held on to you for 10 years in your walk with the Lord? And then all of a sudden you say, well, now I'm what I ought to be. Well, probably not. I'm not all I ought to be. But we need to understand that it's the nature of God. Uh, he, he explained it this way in Acts 17. He says, there was a day that God overlooked sin, but now commands men to repent. Loved ones, it's not just our nation. It's not just our churches. It's me and it's you. We've all had moments that we would be ashamed to have projected on that screen. We've all had moments when we walked in racism. <coughs> there are people here in this church that are, that are two-fisted enemies of of abortion. They, they are pro-life to the greatest measure, but they will tell you that earlier in their life, they were guilty of abortion. Loved ones, I'm thankful that God didn't write me off because I had some bad starts. I'm thankful that God didn't write me off because I had bad moments. And I think it's possible for a person, I think it's possible for a nation to go to the point where they're irredeemable. I, I believe that. But the question is, is the church irredeemable? Is our nation irredeemable? Is our society irredeemable? I think only God can answer that, and we have to do the best that we can. Now, what about long emergency? Well, I, I need to just finish up as quickly as I can. 
Um, in 2008, I began to teach about the long emergency, and we didn't know when it would happen. Some friends were saying we wouldn't see this. I mean, prophets that had, were seeing the same things said, I don't see this coming for 12 or 14 years. I didn't think that was right because when, when you see something from the Lord, it, it's, it's, it's real to you right then. And I thought it would be very quickly, and, and, I don't, and it wasn't, not what I saw. But I think the ones that said it's probably 12 or 14 years out were probably more accurate than me. But we said that there would be economic collapse, a collapse of the medical system uh, if we didn't make some good decisions. There would be racial unrest. There would be persecution of Christians. There would be distribution of goods problems. There would be civil liberties suspended or lost. But we also said there would be a harvest. We said that there were going to be... Um, uh, in the midst of great adversity, it would be the moment of the church's greatest opportunity. When this began, somebody said, do you think this is the long emergency? And I kind of agreed with Rick Joyner. I said, no, I think it might be a dress rehearsal. But I want to tell you something. I, I think what we're seeing, and you've got to understand the long emergency. And we're going to have a Sunday night meeting about long emergency as soon as we can. It, I, just, I want us to get past the election and, and just kind of see where things are settled. But I think the COVID and the uh, George Floyd situation are open doors to the long emergency if we don't humble ourselves and pray and, and, and turn from our wicked ways and, and God can give us some mitigation plans. Uh, by the way, I've, I've had three or four people say what you told us to do is immoral and I, I said, what did I tell you to do? They said, you told us to hoard food and durable goods. Um, <clears throat> two things. Number one, um, by definition, hoarding is the unreasonable uh, acquisition of goods during a time of shortage. Hoarding is not, when it's available, buying an extra can every week. So I have not talked about hoarding. I think hoarding would be bad. But um, I also want to say, those of you that haven't taken long emergency seriously, you need to. We'll talk about that later. Is there hope for our nation? <clears throat> well, we need to pray for mitigation. We need to pray for a resolution. I want to tell you, the election will not solve our race problems. A vaccine will not solve the virus problems. Uh, a stimulus check, although I'm willing to take one, will not solve our economic problems. Loved ones, all of these are systems of something far more grievously broken, and it is our hearts. It is our hearts. Um, <clears throat> we do believe on the basis of Jonah 3 that God can see a turning of a nation and he can relent from the judgment he had planned. Now, <clears throat> I... I, I I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying. The writer of Hebrews says this, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as father addresses his sons? See, some of us are viewing this, yeah, okay, well, it is judgment. It's on the Democrats or it's on the Republicans or it's on the blacks or it's on the whites. I'm telling you, I, we all need to humble ourselves. And we need to remember that judgment begins first in the house of God. 
This is what the writer of Hebrews says, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Esau was called profane. Why? You can be profane for two reasons. You disobey God's law or you disregard God's law. Loved ones, I'm, I'm telling you, and I'm putting myself at the front of the line, we are being judged as individuals. We are being judged as Christians. We are being judged as a nation. And those of you that are letting fear and anger drive you, you're going to be left behind. You're going to miss it because you're thinking that man's devices can solve, in the natural, can solve our problems in the spiritual. I tell you, I'm on my face daily before God. Lord, thank you for your chastening. Thank you for your correction. What am I doing wrong? What am I not taking seriously enough? You say, well, maybe this is all signs of the return of the Lord. Maybe, I don't know. Jesus could come in a few days. Jesus could come in a few hundred years. We simply don't know. Everything over the last 25 years that the Lord has shown me about this long emergency, not a one of them had to do with the Lord's return. Now, I'm not saying he can't come. He can come at any time. But we need to understand you are under judgment right now. Christian life is under judgment right now. But you've got to understand that judgment can be redemptive. Judgment can be a blessing. Sounds hokey, but when my parents used to discipline me, more often than not, not every time, but more often than not, there was such a feeling of love and, and security when I was disciplined because I had a very tender conscience. I knew that my transgression had been dealt with and I knew that while I was being disciplined, while I was being, you know, you're, you're stuck at home, I was also near my parents. And we need to understand that discipline needs to bring joy because it rids you of the guilt, but it also puts you right in the presence of mama and papa. Now there is, first of all, you're in, in the notes. This is a sermon and R.T. writes a good chapter on it. There is retribution and vengeance. This is when God's full wrath is poured out. That should be poured out. Mine says pure out, poured out. Punishment that is severe and is not intended to redeem. It's punishment in purity. There is coming a day when God will mete out what the situation deserves. That's why he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And when it's retribution and it's vengeance, it's done. It's, it's not redemptive. But there is also gracious judgment. It's partly punitive and partly merciful, but always a warning. I think that's what 9-11 was. I think 9-11 was partly punitive. I think it was partly merciful. You say, no, it was the Arab extremist. Well, God uses all kinds of tools, not Arab, Muslim extremists. God uses all kinds of tools, but it was partly punitive, partly merciful, but it was a warning. Then there's redemptive judgment. This is gracious judgment with an intent of moving us toward the fulfillment of promise. There's natural judgment. Sometimes we just reap what we sow. But I want to tell you, we don't want to go anywhere near the last one, silent judgment. Loved ones, this can happen to churches, this can happen to individuals, this can happen to nations. When God, this is R.T.'s quote, when God is angriest, he does nothing. 
You see this in Romans 1, 18 to 32, when man said, I will make God in my own image, in my own likeness. God does nothing. There's a phrase that's used in King James. He turns them over to their thoughts and their reasonings. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, those who rejected the truth, are you with me, loved ones? Those who rejected the truth, he turned over to a reprobate mind to believe a lie and be damned. Loved ones, even the children of God need to be careful that in our unwillingness to be corrected, even in our unwillingness to bow ourselves humbly before the Lord, we are in danger of being turned over to a lying spirit. You say, well, how does that end up? Well, you see it played out in the book of Revelation. God does everything imaginable judgment-wise, but what was their response? They repented not. They repented not. They repented not. And loved ones, I want to give you a caution. Pastor, bishop, superintendent of a denomination, whatever and whoever you may be, if you are not being in this season corrected and chastised by the Lord, I beg you to go to your knees and ask God if your heart has been hardened. Now, is there hope for the church? God's always been willing to work through a remnant. I read in Zechariah this week where it says that I'll take a remnant. And I thought, okay, that's what we're teaching. We'll take a remnant. And that's what he said. And then I'll take a remnant of the remnant and I'll put them through testing as gold and silver is tested. Father, I, I, Lord, um, you loved ones, not father or Lord, but I believe the father has been putting in my heart this understanding that during this time, the safest place to be is in his presence. And the, and the thing of drawing close to him is you're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. In the, in the Old Testament, priests, prophets, kings, and people, all were determinants in Israel standing before the Lord. So when I look at priests and prophets, I say to every pastor, I say to every church, step up to your call. Get back to the gospel. Stop preaching a social gospel. Stop preaching a half-hearted gospel. To the kings, I say, govern with righteousness. Let there be true justice in our court systems. Let everyone be treated right, whether they are black or white or Hispanic. Don't let there be one set of sentencing guidelines for this group and another sentencing guidelines for that group. God hates that sort of thing, and we ought to hate it as well. And to you, the people, you say, I'm just, I'm just one. Seek the Lord with all your heart because we're on holy ground. The return, I want to tell you, when we turn back to God, there will need to be natural and spiritual strategies. We need to understand that there are things we must do. How you vote in, what, two and a half, three weeks, how you vote will have uh, results and implications. I'm not saying that Christians don't vote. We need to vote, and we need to vote as Christians. Um, we, we need to understand that Christian values should triumph any other consideration. Now, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not telling you who to vote for. That is between you and God. 
and the way our system is devised, when you step out of the ballot box, it ought to be that nobody knows who you voted for unless you tell them. I'm not trying to tell you that if you vote for this man, you're voting God's way. If you vote for this man, you're voting the devil's way. But I think we need to have discernment. I think we need to understand that there are natural remedies like elections that we are responsible for. And we need to have some natural strategies. We need to support some things and not support some things. But at the same time, we also have to realize that there are spiritual strategies that we must also embrace. And you know what I see in the church today, and quite frankly, often in ours, is I'll choose this strategy or I'll choose this strategy. And we don't blend the strategies together. The second thing I want you to think about is the need for repentance, humility, and then in my notes, repentance got printed again. Is, that, is it that one? Yours? That's a mistake. What should have been the third word was respect. We need to learn to speak honorably of all men and women. We need to understand that everybody you come in contact with, even the politician you can't stand, was a man or woman for whom Christ died. We've got to recognize his sovereignty, understand that God is working. We want to co cooperate with him. We need to become quick to repent when he convicts us through the spirit or scripture. And I want to talk to you. I don't have time to read it today. I want you to get R.T.'s book and read his final two chapters. R.T. puts it this way. He puts it so eloquently. He says the bottom line, he says there's so many things that need to be done. There's so many actions that need to be taken. There's so many laws that need to be enacted and so many laws that need to be repealed. But he said at the end of the day, the only thing that will really save our nation, the only thing that will really save our nation is if we are willing to forgive those who have wronged us. I don't hear anybody talking about forgiveness. We hear about retribution. We hear about vengeance. We hear about control. We hear about majorities. But RT says it better than I can, and I don't have time to say it today. I want to, one more thing as we try to wrap this thing up. I'm trying to land the plane, but for some reason the landing gear won't go down. You say, Pastor, what do you mean pray the Lord's will be done? Don't you think elections matter? Don't you think who's on the Supreme Court matters? Oh, I do. I do. And, and we need to take responsibility for that and know that we'll stand before God for the decisions we make. All of us need to do that. But I also understand that if we're not careful, we can be so passionate or so angry that there is no acceptance of any outcome except ours. You say, Pastor, what are you going to do if Donald Trump is elected president? I'm going to pray for Donald Trump. I'm going to ask God to show his grace to him. And I'm going to ask God to give him wisdom to know what America ought to do. You say, well, what are you going to do if Joe Biden's elected president? I'm going to pray for President Biden. I'm going to ask God to, sh to show him his grace and his love. I'm going to ask God to give him wisdom to know what America ought to do. Because I want to tell you something. Some of you are so mad that you can't see anything happening except what you've deemed is necessary. 
But I want to tell you something. When you pray your will be done, you begin to understand that even if you were convinced this person is God's will, you can celebrate this person being elected because God's in charge. God is going to work. Oh, I think there are implications. I think th there's a reason I want this person to be president and not this person. But I'm telling you, I'm not going to get mad and run off in the ditch and die if the wrong person's elected senator or governor or congressman. God is sovereign. And God is able to take the prayers we pray backwards and make them turn out forward. What do you want us to remember while we're working this out, Pastor? Good question. I want you to know that I think generally speaking, and I think you're the greatest congregation on planet earth. I really do. It's such an honor to be your pastor. But we have become too casual with a God we barely know. That's what Bobby Connor said. I want to encourage you. If you're going to stay on social media, if you're going to stay on the news, at least make a covenant that you'll match your news and social media time with scripture and prayer time. Gratitude must begin to mark our lives again. Humility must again be recognized as the currency of heaven. I, 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 I'm, I'm saying this to the shame of Democrats and Republicans and independents. God help us when a politician thinks that he can just punch down at people with these silly tweets and these silly posts. I, 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 I'm telling you, God help us if that's what our leadership has sunk to. And God help us if a candidate tells a standing president that you're a liar and just shut up. We have sunk to new lows. I remember back before some of you were born when Jimmy Carter was running against Gerald Ford, they had a presidential election. And, uh, and in the first election, Gerald Ford fairly well defeated Jimmy Carter, who would go on to win the election. They were different in their policies. They were different in their personalities. They were political enemies. And somebody said to Jimmy Carter, you seem pretty nervous in the first debate. And Jimmy Carter said, well, of course I was nervous. I was standing next to the President of the United States. Now, what kind of, what kind of message does that send to our politicians today? And as a pastor, I say, President Trump, we love you, but you need to be a gentleman. To Joe Biden, I say, we, we love you, Mr. Vice President, but you need to be a gentleman. And you are leading a whole generation of youth to think that the way we make progress is to hate and despise and disregard one another. And I'll say this, forgiveness is the catalyst to all we hope to see. And the greater you've been hurt, the greater the potential for anointing. Pastors are learning, the greater the church has disappointed them, the greater is the potential for their anointing if they can forgive. Churches are learning, the greater the pastor hurt me, the greater the potential for anointing if we'll forgive. Nothing will proceed without humility and forgiveness. Now, what are my conclusions? I believe God's revival will come soon and suddenly. I'm holding out for the harvest. 
I believe the next renewal will be ecumenical. And what I mean by ecumenical is not some formal movement, but a coming together of churches, a coming together of denominations. I've had three dreams about days of revival and awakening. And in three, I mean, I've had more dreams than that, but I've had three dreams in which um, uh, the most unlikely partners partnered with us uh, in, in the evangelization of the lost. It'll be represented by churches of all traditions and sizes. Spiritual power is the catalyst for true reformation. I believe that America's churches will lead the way in solving our race problems, but not until we've come to the end of our excuses, our anger, and our fear. You say, well, pastor, you're not black. You don't know how I've been treated. I, I know how you've been treated. I haven't been there to feel what you felt. I, I understand that. But it's not, you don't need me to understand you for us to work together. You don't need me to have experienced what you've experienced for us to work together as a church. And, and I'm hearing this a lot from the whites. Well, I didn't do it. I, I, I haven't been racist in the way I've lived. I know loved ones, but we're part of a race that has been. And there's such a thing as identificational repentance. And we need to understand that we owe an understanding of black America to black America. Um, we, we need to understand that, that there are bad policemen. And we need to understand that the majority are not racist and are not evil. And anytime you try to make an entire race or an entire entity or an entire political party, the moment you vilify them as all of the devil, you've lost perspective and you've lost your seat at the table. Don't forget to allow Jesus to be your partner in dealing with your pain because he's touched with the pain of your weaknesses. And remember, even though we feel outnumbered in solving these problems, remember what Elijah told, Elisha told his servant. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Loved ones, I, I had to share what I shared today. I had to do it for you. I had to do it for me to feel free. Now, as we march forward from this day into an election, into a new year, into new question marks, the question is, are we going to let God lead us and and heal us? Or are we going to try to let the government heal us? Are we going to try to let our vengeance heal us? I know I've not been politically correct and I'm, I don't flaunt that. I th you know, let me, let, me tell you, let me tell you where I'm at. I read Genesis 6 and this is how pastors feel today. God told Noah to get all those animals in the ark and then keep them alive. Herbivores, carnivores, flyers, runners, squigglers. You say, what are you calling me? I, you take whichever you want. God said, I'll send them in, 
You keep them alive. Loved ones, all I'm trying to do is keep you alive. I want to say it again. I can't solve your problems, but we can stand together to have our problems solved. I'm not saying we won't take missteps, but if we do, it'll be mistakes of the head, not the heart. This is the greatest day for Christian life if we'll line up with him. I'm done. Justin. I don't know how to end. Thank you. Love you. going to spend the next few moments in worship. So if you want to remain standing, that's great. I'm going to dismiss those of you that need to go. If you're watching online and you'd like prayer, or if you're here today, our altar ministers are going to be in the hallway to my right, to your left, to pray with you today. But let's settle in our hearts and let's process and take some time if necessary. Don't rush out of the Lord's presence, especially if he's spoken to your heart today. Process with him. Let him speak to you. Let him work in you. And let his work be established and on its way to completion. Because that's how we'll be unified today. Lord, I bless this church family. Thank you for their pursuit and their persistence to see that your kingdom is coming and your will is being done on this earth as it is in heaven. Father, as some of us just stay in your presence to worship and process, meet us in our seat, meet us at the front, meet us in the hallway with ministers, meet us on the phone if we're calling in. Lord, however we respond to you today, I pray that you'd meet us in our frailty and weakness and remind us of your strength, of your love, and your power. Jesus, we want to please you. At the end of the day, we want to please the Father's heart. So help us to do that. And Lord, those that need to go, I pray that you'd bless them on every level, spirit, soul, and body. Show them how to walk with you more closely. Show them how to forgive. Show them how to be that buffer that is necessary in our society right now to bring peace, to bring joy, to bring hope. We live not as unto ourselves, but we live as unto the Lord. Help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Stay in worship if you'd like. If you need to go, please do that quietly so those who are in here can focus on the Lord's presence. But Lord willing, we'll see you Wednesday. God bless you. Have a great week.